This morning, I want to take up the question of our identity as a religious community. Some years ago, we held the Mid-South District annual meeting at our home, my home congregation in Nashville. The keynote speaker was Bill Sinkford, then president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. At the end of his keynote, Bill opened the floor for an informal question and answer session. Someone asked him what he thought was the number one issue facing our Unitarian Universalist congregations today. He answered that it was the issue of religious language, the words we use to express our faith. He added that if we are to be taken seriously as a participant in religious dialogue and justice-making in our communities, we're going to have to get better at using the traditional language of faith. Well, you could have heard a pin drop in that sanctuary. Remember, we're not talking about New England. We're talking about the hinterlands, mission territory, historically referred to as the problem in the West. And if you know, if you know your UU history, that's everywhere past upper New, New York State, is the West. Some sat in stunned silence. Others wanted to stand up and shout hallelujah, but they knew that the issue was far too divisive for that kind of celebration and would not be polite of Southerners. Others wanted to stand up and shout something else altogether, but they opted for maintaining a sense of decorum instead. Of course, all these years later, the issue is still coming up all over the place as we engage in the work of justice with communities beyond these walls and have to find language that allows us to work together. We know that there's been a shift towards spirituality, not only in our churches, but also in our culture as a whole. However, this shift has not come without drawing the ire and angst of many of our folks who've been around through the middle of the 20th century when our focus on rationalism and intellectual religion was so clearly dominant. If you check the back issues of the UU World magazine, you'll see it all over the place, most notably in letters to the editor. Some are clearly hurt and angry over this change in their church, and they are not letting it happen without putting up a fight. Not to belittle this very real and very difficult struggle we're going through, but this is nothing new for us. In fact, if we look at our own history, the tension between rational religion and spirituality is perhaps our grandest tradition. And the often bitter conflict between the two are our burden and inheritance. Now, I'll presume to talk a little bit about New England history here. Our earliest forebears found themselves in conflict with the emotional, ecstatic revivalists of the 18th century. Among those revivalists, they became known as the Old Light Presbyterians, which we might characterize as the fuddy-duddies. <laughs> Their penchant for rationalism led them to embrace the new methods of biblical criticism coming out of Germany at the beginning of the 19th century. Armed with the historical critical approach, they combed their Bibles for facts and found the text lacking in so many places that they began to depart from traditional theology and even from the church itself. They then adopted the name that their opponents had given them as a means of slander. They called themselves Unitarians. Now, a few decades later, along comes a guy, this Emerson person. I believe he sat right where you're sitting right there, sir. Oh, man, that freaks me out. Okay. <laughs> In 1838, 
Emerson's address to the graduating class of Harvard Divinity School, he talked about this emerging spirituality he felt and how it didn't seem to have a place among the corpse-cold Unitarians. <laughs> he and the Transcendentalists went on to explore the world's religions and to affirm their spiritual practices and the contemplation of nature as essential components of the religious life. Throughout our history, we've seen this pendulum swing back and forth, rationality, spirituality. This is the dualism that has gnawed at us for the past 200 years. And the tension it creates has played havoc with our sense of identity all this time. So who are we? What are we? Are we proponents of a rational religion? Are we a deeply spiritual community? Are we something in between or wholly other? How can we know? I believe that it is the role of poets and composers to help us figure this out. Our liturgical artists help us articulate our sense of identity. They give us the means to give voice to our faith. Since the dawn of civilization, human beings have tried to express their relationship with the divine through song. From the Psalms of Israel to the songs of the civil rights movement, there's been an intrinsic relationship between music and faith. In reflecting on the role of music in the movement, Martin Luther King wrote, an important part of the mass meetings was the freedom songs. In a sense, the songs are the soul of the movement. They are more than just incantations of clever phrases designed to invigorate a campaign. They are as old as the history of the Negro in America. They are adaptations of the songs the slaves sang, the sorrow songs, the shouts for joy, the battle hymns, and the anthems of our movement. I have heard people talk of their beat and their rhythm, but we in the movement are inspired by their words. We sing freedom songs today for the same reason the slaves sang them, because we too are in bondage, and the songs add hope to our determination that we shall overcome. Black and white together, we shall overcome someday. King goes on to say, I have stood in a meeting with hundreds of youngsters and joined in while they sang, Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Round. It is not just a song. It is a resolve. A few minutes later, I have seen those same youngsters refuse to turn around from the onrush of a police dog, refuse to turn around before a pugnacious bull Connor in command of armed men with power hoses. These songs bind us together. Give us courage together. Help us march together. The fact that the songs we sing reflect our sense of who we are also accounts for the ever-changing and adapting body of new hymns and songs being produced by our various religious traditions. As people of faith hone their theological and communal identities, new music seems naturally to follow which reflects and supports these changing ideas. This is of particular interest in our own Unitarian Universalist tradition, which has, in the past few decades, just begun to take seriously again the idea of crafting our own distinct musical and liturgical traditions. In the past, ours has been primarily a borrowed tradition, one in which the vast majority of our hymns and songs have been adapted from pre-existing material so as to reflect our liberal religious principles. 
But in the past few years, we've seen an explosion of new musical expressions of our living tradition. It's a great time to be a UU musician. I say this because we seem to be getting at a deeper level the fact that music serves as a primary means of communal identification. If a person were completely unfamiliar with the theological traditions of this community, they could get a strong sense of what we're about by thumbing through our hymn book or taking note of the songs we sing over time. Even for a movement like Unitarian Universalism, which claims to hold no particular text as sacred more than any other, our hymn books have functioned very much like sacred scripture. They serve as tools for welcoming and sometimes alienating visitors to our churches by making statements about our common values and beliefs through the theological content of our hymn texts and the variety of musical traditions whence we draw our tunes. Especially in the case of religious communities, what we sing is who we are. In the spring 2008 issue of the Buddhist Review Tricycle, sociologist Robert Bella published a particularly insightful article called The R Word, Why Militant Atheists and Fundamentalists Both Get Religion Wrong. His basic premise is that the very popular crop of anti-religion authors on today's bestseller list, such as Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, are making a flawed argument when they say that religion should be eliminated from human culture and replaced with science. Their beef with fundamentalism is justifiable and perhaps even useful, but in elevating these extremist approach to a baseline for the religious experience, Bella argues that these folks miss the point of religion altogether. He cites a rising wave of anti-religious scientific evangelicals who want to start a new kind of church. One of them wrote, and he quoted, We should let the success of the religious formula guide us. Let's teach our children from a very young age about the story of the universe and its incredible richness and beauty. It's already so much more glorious and awesome and even comforting than anything offered by any scripture or God concept I know. Wow. On one level, I completely resonate with this idea. But the reality is, is, is that I, I want to resonate with it, mostly out of anger and disappointment over what passes for religion in so many spiritual communities today, even though the argument really doesn't hold up. Bella says that although the scientist wants to replace religious belief with scientific fact, what she really wants to teach her children is not science, but myth, the story of the universe. Science cannot tell us that the universe is rich and beautiful, much less what is glorious or awesome. These are concepts that only work within a framework of meaning, and meaning-making is what religion does best. My Unitarian Universalist framework finds this story of the universe compelling because it appeals to a set of values that have been cultivated and lifted up as worthy of both our contemplation and of service to others in the world. Faith in the limitlessness of possibility, the inspirational quality of discovery, and the inherent beauty and goodness of the natural world are hallmarks of our tradition. But that same Unitarian Universalist framework 
also tells me that there are others who share neither my values nor my spiritual framework for discerning what those values ought to be, and that I cannot dismiss them as being somehow less than I am. All I can do is encourage others in their spiritual growth, while at the same time committing to and deepening my own. And so we sing. We sing our commitments to theological diversity, our concerns about gender and affectional identity, our care for the earth and its interdependent systems of being, and our aspirations for our own spiritual growth. In a way, what we sing ministers to us by helping our communities understand who and what they are. This is, if you will, music's ministry to us. Music offers us the possibility of transformation each and every time we sing. I know this to be true because I've seen it happen over and over again. How many stories have I heard after a Sunday service about how a hymn or an anthem spoke to a person's life experience and opened them to a new understanding? How many times have we gathered with others for greater service when diverse cultural and theological traditions seemed insurmountable and found that just the right song created a sense of community and common purpose? And how many times have I been moved to share the song in my heart, sure that I was doing it just for you and your benefit, and found that it was me who needed and was gifted with transformation? On some level, it seems silly to be standing here talking about singing this morning, while so many Native Americans are struggling to resist the desecration of their sacred lands in North Dakota. And while black lives still don't seem to matter quite enough, and while our toxic political environment has strained or destroyed so many relationships between friends, family members, co-workers, and neighbors, but oh, my friends, how we are in need of a song today. And not just a song, but a resolve. That we might summon the courage to witness and agitate and work for the dawning of the world we say we want to live in. A song may be our best hope. If what we sing is truly who we are, then it is my fervent prayer that ours is a faith worth singing about.